sermon lesson is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is the gospel of the Lord. All right, am I good? Okay. I probably should have warned you, my voice gets loud sometimes. So um, people think I start out like this and then it gets increased. Um, as was mentioned, my name is Stephen McGinnis. I've had the, uh, the joy, the honor of being here many times before. And uh, it is uh, still a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning. Uh, I know that you all have been in this series on the Lord's Prayer, and we are sort of taking our cue uh, from um, uh, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And in order to explore that this morning, we are going to look at Genesis 3, uh, specifically verses 1 through 13, though we might dabble into verse 15 and 21 as well. Uh, I do want to say in the 20 to 25 minutes that we have, uh, that it's going to be difficult to explore a lot of uh, what you could explore when it comes to the uh, topic of temptation and particularly of evil. And so um, I'm not going to be diving into one category in particular, which is, to use a fancy term, uh, the category of theodicy, which is to explore the question of why does evil exist if we really do serve a good and powerful God? It seems like he would have to give one of those up at least. Maybe he can be good and not powerful. Maybe he can be powerful but not good. But how can he be both at the same time? Especially when we pray, deliver us from evil, and then evil uh, comes upon us or visits us in difficult ways. That is a topic that deserves its own sort of sermon, uh, its own sort of seminar on its own. So with that, let me pray and let us dive into this wonderful text. Father, what a privilege it really is to come together this morning and to worship you as brothers and as sisters, to worship you in freedom to open up full Bibles that we had no problem acquiring and being able to dabble from Genesis to Revelation wherever we want. Um, that is something that your church has not had the privilege of for a lot of its years, and we have it this morning. We thank you for it. I pray that you would prick our hearts as we explore this topic of sin and temptation and evil, and I pray that you would show us things that we need to be shown that we may come to you to be forgiven, to be renewed, uh, to be refreshed. Um, and for those of us who come in here struggling this morning, I pray that we would leave at least with some bit of respite. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why, why explore this topic? Um, I want to point out to you on, I guess, the front page or the first page under reflections in your bulletins or handouts, this quote from D.A. Carson in his book, Fallen. He says this, it is impossible to gain a deep grasp of what the cross achieves without plunging into a deep grasp of what sin is. 
Conversely, to augment one's understanding of the cross is to augment one's understanding of sin. In short, if we do not comprehend the massive role that sin plays in the Bible and therefore in biblical faithful Christianity, we shall misread the Bible. But I think, if we were to be honest, that we have moved away a lot as a culture at least, but even in the church, we've moved away from um, using this term often. And there's lots of reasons for that. I know that when we talk about the word sin, we want to be careful maybe not to offend somebody else. Uh, certainly, you know, what is the way that tolerance sort of weaves in with calling sin, sin? And that struggle causes us to sometimes avoid the terminology. But I think another thing, and there's lots, but I think another thing that we'll identify uh, of why we don't confront this term, sin, and, and again, even temptation and evil, is that we are really, really good at self-deception, right? And so the problem is always out there, but it's never here in us. Or maybe it's at other churches or other institutions, but it's not in this one. There was an article that a New York Times author wrote, David Brooks, uh, love him or hate him, I know that it seems like uh, people, he divides people sometimes, but he wrote this article back, I want to say circa 2008, after the abuse scandal involving Jerry Sandusky, and um, I sent Jared, by the way, lots of quotes, um, only two of them made him in, but I'm going to still read some of them. Um, so this is David Brooks, and he's writing this article, he called it, Let's All Feel Superior, and it's after this scandal that many of you are probably familiar with in college football. And this was related to Penn State, and he was a coach under Paterno. He said this, We're not Puritans anymore. We live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness. Which my kids remind me of all the time, uh, that we're surrounded around their inner wonderfulness. So when something atrocious happens, people look for some artificial outside force that must have caused it like the culture of college football or some other favorite bogey. People look for laws that can be changed so it never happens again. Commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from the island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? And so I've, I've loved... And please, if you have time, go read the whole thing. You look it up. Again, let's all feel superior is the name of it. But I love this concept of the island of our own inner wonderfulness or island of their own innocence. I think that's how a lot of us approach life. It's how a lot of us approach church. It's how a lot of us approach, approach faith, and, which is why I love Genesis 3 to remind us our relationship with the Lord and where it stands without Jesus. So what is it? What is sin? And its connection, therefore, to temptation and to evil. Well, there's a, a question and answer format that if you've been around Presbyterianism for any length of time uh, that we subscribe to, and it just question and answer. And one of the ones early on in the shorter version of the question and answer, the catechism is that sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Basically, if you want another definition of that, you can look at the confession of sin, the third sentence that we read this morning. It is the things that we do that we shouldn't, and the things that we should do, but we decide not to. 
That is the definition, basically, of sin. I also like this quote that Jared kindly put here in the bulletin by Bruce Waltke. I'll read this. In sum, sin is the perversion at the core of our being that causes us to disobey. Sin is the desire, the imagination to be like God. The refusal to be human, to be creaturely, that causes us to disobey. Correlatively, sin is an inward spiritual breach of trust in God's character and His Word that results in active disobedience. And so where does that refusal to be human, that refusal to be creaturely, the desire to de-God, God, to dethrone God, where does it even come from? And I think we find it here in Genesis 3. And so first, the pattern of sin. I remember I was putting a sermon together on this text many years ago. And uh, I'm sure subconsciously these, this pattern was already there. I'm sure you could add one or two of them, but I want to walk us through one of the patterns that I see at least play out in my own life and in my children's lives and my friends' and family's lives as well. And you can write these down or just remember them because we're going to revisit them at the very end. So what is the pattern that we see here? Well, the first thing that I want to identify is that there is a placement of self before God. Okay, number one, there is a placement of self before God. Look at verse 6. In Genesis chapter 3, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was also with her. So in other words, it did not matter what God told her. There was a desire at play that pushed her to put herself before what God said. Okay, so number one, placement of self before God. Secondly, there is an experience after that happens of shame and guilt. And I wish we had time to dissect the two of those and talk about how they're related to one another, but also different. So number one, placement of self before God. Number two, experience of shame and guilt. Look at verse seven. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Number three, running and hiding, but predominantly just hiding. So one, placement of self before God. Two, experience of shame and guilt. Three, hiding. Look at verse eight. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord among the trees of the garden. And then lastly, blame shifting. Shifting the blame. And we could probably throw confrontation of God uh, to man, but uh, we're going to leave that one out for now. Shifting the blame, verses 12 and 13. So they get confronted. And what happens? The man says, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. And so, attention is turned to Eve and what is said there. The serpent deceived me and I ate. So I wonder if you recognize this pattern at all at play in your own life or you've recognized it at play in the lives of the people around you. And I also wonder if I were to ask you to come up with some illustrations 
from your own life, from your own story, of how you've seen this pattern play out, I wonder what those illustrations would be. I have twins. My wife and I have twins. They're uh, going to be turning 11 here in just a couple of weeks. But it's been interesting to see this pattern play out. And it's sort of when you know they're three, four, five years old, it's sort of benign to point this out. I think as you get older, it's a little more painful to name uh, some of these things and how they intersect with our lives directly. But right, it was at that age, like a slap or a push or something like that. And then there was crying. Um, and then one of them feels bad about what they did, and they're sort of ashamed, and so they go to their room, and what they're doing there is they're hiding. And we saw that pattern sort of play out over and over again. But as I think about it, right, this pattern is true for me as well as an adult. Maybe I say an unkind word to my children or to my spouse or to even my parents, but let's take the one to the spouse, So an unkind word is said, and I immediately feel bad about it. And so I go downstairs to sort of disconnect and to work. I'll get into something so I don't have to think about it, but I know that deep down I feel guilty about what I have done to my wife. And then she comes down, or maybe later in the day we're together, and it sort of comes back up, and what is the first thing that I do? Uh, I'm sorry, but... If you had heard the way that you sounded, if you had seen the look on your face, you would understand why I said the unkind word to you. And so what am I doing there in that moment? I'm blame shifting. I kind of am owning what I have done, but not completely because other people share in my response, you see. What was I supposed to do? Everyone else would have responded the way that I did. And we could go on and on illustrating this. I'll I'll just do a couple more to really, I think, hone this in. Again, placement before God. There's too many of these examples, and I've already shared one. But this is any desire to put yourself before God. And so the question is, where have I done that recently? Secondly, the experience of shame and guilt. And I guess my question to you is, like, what is the lingo that goes on in your brain when you experience guilt or you experience shame from something that you have done. Maybe it's something to the effect of, I'm the worst. I can't believe that I did that. How could I? Or sometimes when you're talking to yourself, you say, how could you? I'm an idiot. If people only knew what was going on up here or in here, they would run away from me. How do you hide when you experience guilt and shame. I think the most illustrative thing that I've ever thought about, at least on this one, is my wife, when she was a little girl, she told me when she would get in trouble, she would have to go up to her room to think about what she had done. And then after thinking for quite a while, she wears shame pretty heavy. And even back then, because she put so much of her worth and being a good kid, even after getting in trouble, in, in sort of serving her sentence up in the room, she would, when it was time to come back down, she would actually take a sheet and she would cover herself. And she would walk down into the presence of her parents and her sister. And even though she had served again her sentence, she still did not feel clean enough. And so she would walk down with the sheet over her head and just stand in front of them, which I'm sure they would laugh at 
a little bit, but the fact of the matter is that even then we feel that need to hide from the people that love us. And there would almost have to be a lifting of the sheet from our parents like, no, you are good. But we do it. We hide, don't we? How do you hide? And then lastly, blame shifting. And I'll tell you this story very quickly. Uh, when my son, Gregory, I, I, I asked him, by the way, I get permission to share these stories. I probably have a couple years and then they're going to be like, no, no more. Um, but when my son was in pre- preschool or maybe kindergarten, he was at this little preschool. And one day, him and three of his little guy buddies stole a shoe from one of the girls in the class. And they were like tossing it around, uh, doing keep away. And one of them felt the need to throw the shoe over the fence. And that was just too far. And so they all got in trouble. And later that night, we're downstairs and we're talking with our son about what he had done to help him process it. And, you know, at first it was like, well, everyone was doing it. And we're like, yeah. And we, we actually took him to this text, Genesis chapter 3. And I was talking with him a little bit about, like, how he's responsible. And we were talking about temptation. And we were talking about how we are often uh, deceived. And I remember, clear as day, him stopping. And he's like, yeah, Dad, I heard a pss in my head. <sighs> Blame shifting. He's so crafty himself. It wasn't really me. I heard a It's like he was in the garden or something. Over and over, it's a never-ending cycle that we need help breaking. But we have to get to the root of what is going on first. And so secondly, the root of sin. What is going on here? What's at play in the heart, in the mind? Well, let's go back to verse 6 where Adam and Eve placed themselves before God. What is happening ultimately in their hearts, in their minds? Look again at verse 6. The woman saw the tree was good, that it was a delight to the eye, and that it was to be desired. It's interesting that Scripture is constantly talking about this category of desire. We see here at the very beginning, but we see it play out all the way to the end. How do our desires drive us to put ourselves before God? What informs the things that we desire? And it is the thing which you feel like you have to have in order to have worth, in order to have value, in order to have significance and purpose. And when that thing is not God, we, we categorize that or we call it, at least sort of in the history of Christianity, we call that category idolatry. It is the thing that we worship other than God. Those are the things that push us into temptation, that push us towards sin, that often can bring evil to visit upon ourselves and to other people. This is a quote. This is not in your bulletin. Though I sent it to Jared, so he has it. Um, this is Tertullian at probably the end of the second century. He's often referred to as the father of Western Christianity. He says this, or Latin Christianity. The principal crime, the principal crime of the human race, the highest guilt charged upon the world, the whole procuring cause of judgment is idolatry. All murder and adultery, for example, are actually idolatry. For they arise or they happen because something is loved more than God. Thus it comes to pass 
that in idolatry all crimes are detected. And in all crimes, idolatry. I ran across this document. I don't even know what it's from. Um, there was this 20 categories of idolatry. I think this was put together by Tim Keller. And at the top of the page was this sentence. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if. And then he went out and named 20 different idols that often inform, uh, inform us uh, being led into temptation and to sin. Now, we're not going to go through all 20. I've just identified a few that I think are important. This is how we learn to identify the ways in which we place ourselves before God. So I picked out four. Let's do one. This is the independence idol. So here we go. I'm going to read the sentence, and then we're going to read out what the idol is. Life only has meaning. I only have worth if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of somebody else. So the example here would be, and maybe you've noticed this before, you're in a relationship, it's going well, but things start to get just a little serious. And this could also be a friendship, by the way. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. And so what happens is because that's an idol, you start to find things that are wrong with the other person. And so therefore you start to second guess whether the relationship or whether the friendship is it actually worth it? Let's do another one. Achievement idol. Oh, did I see this at Emory University when I was a chaplain there? Life only has meaning, I only have worth if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and am excelling in my work. Being the smartest student, the best leader, the most sought after leader. And what ends up happening there is because that is the highest good, that is where we place ourselves before God, we will do anything to make sure that people recognize the achievement. And so it translates into diminished relationships. Cheating. Failing on other commitments. We go to the thing that we're most recognized in and diminish the other things. Let's do another one. Just got two more. This is one of my favorites. Religion idol. Life only has meaning, I only have worth, if I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. I saw this at play in a school that I went to in middle school. I was just there for a couple of years. Um, and this was definitely an idol that was at play, right? There was all sorts of interesting rules. Boys couldn't wear hair past their ears. You could... Uh, you couldn't play cards, right? Because that could possibly lead to other things. Gambling, I suppose, and stuff. Um, what were some other ones? Um, oh, you, they wouldn't even let you play the very far deep keys on the piano. Um, no drums. And I could go on and on and on. What was that play here? What was that play was don't even get close to the things that could possibly get close to the things that are against God's law. There was a religion idol at play. Let's do the last one. Family. Life. And this one can sting a little bit for myself, but life only has meaning. I only have worth if my children and or my parents and or my siblings are happy and also happy with me. 
dismissing bad behavior. Whatever it takes to not disappoint the idol. Maybe a spouse's happiness is the idol. And what happens? Well, it's easier to disobey the Lord than it is to disappoint a parent, a child, a spouse. Let me say that again. It's easier to disobey the Lord than to disappoint a spouse or a parent or sibling. So let's get to Jesus' prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What has God given to us in order to help? And they are over and over and over and over again the gifts of repentance and the gifts and the gift of faith. And so lastly, the undoing of sin. Some of the best words that have ever been penned by one of the best authors that has ever lived, in my opinion, were Flannery O'Connor in Wise Blood, where she says, The way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. She wrote that the way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. Maybe you've heard that quoted before, but I think also that the inverse with a little bit of a spin on it is also true, which is that the way to pretend to avoid sin is to pretend you can avoid Jesus. And the reality is the Bible teaches that we can do neither very well. We live in the illusion that we can, but we actually can't. So what do we do with temptation, with sin, with evil? And it is to let, uh, let it drive us to Jesus. That is the aim of repentance. That is the aim of faith. And so where do we turn when we think about how that actually plays out? What that looks like? And there are lots of places, but because we don't have much time, let's just look at Psalm 51 verse 17. And all of Psalm 51, though, is confessing, asking, receiving. Over and over again. Confessing, asking, receiving. Confessing what has been done, asking Jesus to do something about it, and then receiving what he has done. But I love verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And what I think is interesting in there is that it assumes that sin is going to happen. The fact that there was ongoing sacrifices sort of assumed that the nation of Israel was going to continue to sin. And I know that in my own life, in, in the life of my children, that is certainly at play. I do not think that my kids are going to get to a point to where they're no longer going to disobey us. Kids, and I did this to my own parents, constantly defying them over and over again. I constantly disobeyed my parents. And my kids do it now. And when it was, you know, when they were younger, uh, the, the consequences were lower, but still it was present, right? Don't take the food or the water into the playroom. Uh, and they do it over and over and over again. Don't provoke your brother. And then they keep provoking. Or don't provoke your sister. Don't hit your brother. Don't hit your sister. Don't leave the dinner table until you've been excused. If you grew up in a home or you have kids of your own, you know these things over and over and over again. It's frustrating. Those are sort of benign things. There are more serious. But you know it's coming. And so what's the point? The point of pointing it out is not so that one day they will become perfect. It's for them to learn repentance. To say on their own, Mommy, I'm so sorry. 
I messed up again. Will you forgive me? And the reality is, we will. Of course we will, every time. Because we realize that most of the stuff that they mess up by their disobedience, they are not going to be able to fix. They don't have the tools yet. And that's true for us when it comes to walking with the Lord. Like most of the things that we mess up and the ways that we hurt other people, we can't fix on our own. We can't fix on our own, even if we try. And that reality with my own kids, knowing that they can't fix things, that is the reality when I approach the Lord. And it takes us back to Genesis 3 to see how God undoes temptation and sin and evil. And if we had the time, we could play a little bit with verse 15, where it's the first picture of the gospel, the promise of the offspring of the woman that will one day undo everything. Or verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. They had already clothed themselves. Of course, you know that, right? They, they made loincloths out of fig leaves. But that didn't suffice. They made a mess that they could not clean up on their own. And so we see the first shedding of blood in verse 21 of Genesis 3. But let's go deeper and see how Jesus undoes the pattern. So let me take you back. Let's see if we can remember. Man trying to be like God, right? Genesis 3, 6. They took the, the fruit and they ate it. Philippians 2, 7 through 8. God becomes like man. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Man tries to become like God. It fails. How do you undo that? God becomes like man. What's the second step? The experience of guilt and shame. They knew that they were naked. Genesis 3, verse 7. Hebrews 12, verse 2 what happens? Jesus takes on guilt and shame. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What's the third step? Man essentially runs and hides from God. What do we see happening in the New Testament? Well, really the whole, the whole of Scripture God going and finding man. We see actually in the garden, but we continue to see it. You can just look at Luke 15, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. And then the father running after the prodigal son after he squandered his wealth away. Adam and Eve, they run and they hide. The father comes. And the ultimate example of that obviously is Jesus pursuing. And then lastly, what do we see in verses 12 and 13 when Adam and Eve are confronted? It was the woman that you gave me. It was the serpent that you put in the garden. God takes the blame. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Every step of the pattern of sin that we see in Genesis 3 is literally undone by the person in the work of Jesus. In other words, the death and the resurrection undoes it all step by step. 
every one of them, which led to our break with God, is specifically undone by Jesus. It's so beautiful and amazing to see that play out. And so how are we ultimately led away from temptation? How are we ultimately delivered from evil? It is uniting to Jesus in faith and walking with Him. And I was just reminded when we were singing um, the hymn earlier, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. I just, where is that? I just love this. Talking about turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth and the things that tempt us will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so if you need to know, what does it mean to put your faith in this person who breaks all of the pattern of sin? It is to turn your eyes upon him and to look full in his wonderful face and his face is staring upon you with delight and joy no matter what you've done even this week no matter what you've thought said done to yourself or to another person turn your eyes upon him and he looks upon you with joy in his face and says you are mine let's pray father thank you for showing us the ways in which the patterns of sin play out in the way that your son has undone every single one of them. Would you this morning turn our eyes to look upon him and to see with joy how he's undone all of them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.